0: Welcome back to Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church, where Clayton and I survey the next week's readings and our Read the Whole Bible in a Year plan chronologically. Uh, we talk about that, we ask one another questions, and we ask questions that you submit. Alrighty, well, we have a couple questions to mm-hmm. respond to, Pastor Clayton. So the first one is more of a kind of general applies to a lot of the the Bible uh, symbolism of the number 40, specifically 40 days. So 40 Mm -hmm. days is part of the flood story. Moses is on the mountain for 40 days. Elijah fasts for 40 days. Jesus's temptation lasts 40 days in the wilderness. And then we also see 40 days pass between Jesus's resurrection and ascension. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you could just speak to the significance of 40 days or the number
1: 40. Um, 40 shows up in a lot of places. 40 is usually, not always, but usually associated with a period of testing or waiting. Um, and it seems to be just an a important number in the Bible that seems to indicate the length of something. So it's about uh, the number of years in a generation. It's it's a, a convenient, clean number that's used for just a, a certain period of time. A lot of people have made much of this and have thought that there was something deep and important and mystical about the number 40. Um, I suspect that what we find here is something just preserved from the ancient culture, a, a common idiom or, or phrase. Um, we might be more likely to talk about something being a uh, hundred years or a decade um, 40 was just a length of time for them. And there are other important numbers in the Bible mm-hmm. um, for different reasons. This question was not about them, but people have pointed out the recurrence of the number three, the number seven, the number 12, mm-hmm. all of which appear in the Bible. Um, and all of those are are can be symbolic of things. You know, there's there's an idea of completion or perfection with the number seven. 12, of course, is representative of... of Um, Israel and the apostles. And we see that number coming up repeatedly, three, three members of the Trinity.
0: And then we also have a couple questions specific to Exodus. Uh, And so first up is Exodus 32, 33, uh, when Yahweh tells Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Yeah. And this comes just after the golden calf incident and Moses is interceding on behalf of the people. And so the question is, does this mean that... uh, Sin in a believer's life can cause Their name to be blotted out
1: We have to, anytime we look at A, a text, we have to look at the context Of where it is and what's happened Recently, mm-hmm. and so this is obviously at the tail End of the golden calf story right? And what has just happened Is um, Yahweh has come to Moses and said, I'm gonna Get rid of this whole people and make a new One through you And Moses Moses says, don't do that and, You know, we, we're continuing a little ways And then Moses says, please, please bear this. Um, Please allow them to continue. And if not, blot me out. And Yahweh says, whoever sins is the one that I will blot out. I don't think that this is a commentary on Yahweh promising, you know, that, that sin equals being blotted out of his book. What he's saying to Moses is, I will not do that to you on their behalf. Um, Now, this is something he does do to Jesus. He he doesn't blot Jesus out of the book, but he does allow Jesus to bear punishment for the people, and he allows sacrifices to do that in Leviticus. But I think that this comment here is a reference to Moses' comment just beforehand. Moses says, let me be the one to bear the punishment, and Yahweh says, no, 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 Mm -hmm. no, no, I don't do that. I'm not going to punish you for what they have done.
0: So we have another question from Exodus 33, which sort of describes the uh, rhythm of meeting that Moses mm. had with God kind of before the official tabernacle was set up. It seems like maybe there was another tent, the tent of meeting uh, that uh, Moses would go to uh, on a daily basis, I think it says. And, and uh, the comment is made in, in verse 11 that Moses spoke face to face with God as a man speaks to his friend. Uh, but then towards the end of this story, God specifically tells Moses that he can't see his face when Moses asks to see his glory, uh, but he will allow his back or his after image or something to be seen instead. But at the beginning, it says that Moses sure. speaks him face to face, but then at the end, it says God tells him he can't see his face. So what's going on there? Uh, how can both of those things be true?
1: So the um, the word the word that's translated as face from Hebrew to English carries a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. Um, for example in the Ten Commandments um, the 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 idols command you shall not have any idols before me actually literally says in front of my face
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, the word face gets substituted for person a lot of the time or or nearness you're close enough to them to see their face that's the idea of face to face a lot of the time in Hebrew so we we know that what's being talked about is Moses going in to the the tent of meeting and the pillar, the cloud pillar being what he is conversing with. And I think that from the perspective of the people, this is Moses going and he and Yahweh are near to one another as Mm -hmm. they're talking. But the the idea that um, his inner glory or inner self or um, just the the part of Yahweh that is concealed um, is being revealed to Moses, I don't think we're supposed to understand from this. Again, we don't use face as broadly as they did. Um, it might be able to say man-to-man or, um, you know, that they, they stood in each other's personal space and conversed. So it's with more of a relational or,
0: it's a or relational intimate, intimacy thing. Yeah. The <laughs> final question we have from Exodus comes from chapter 34, which is a series of some different laws, and specifically a section that gives some of the stipulations around the great festivals, and in verse 23, mm-hmm. yeah, it says three times in the year, meaning the three great festivals, all your males shall appear in the presence of the master, the Lord God of Israel. And then it goes on. So the question is, why uh, does it specify the men or why are only the men required to go to the temple three times a year?
1: I'm not entirely sure. Um, I have a couple of thoughts. So this is a law that is going to be kept uh, for a long time. And one of the things is that this might require some travel. Um, and so the men who are the ones who are working the field are the ones that are coming and appearing before the the temple or, or the uh, before Yahweh. That becomes difficult to do later on when travel is involved because there may be things going on at home. The, I mean, the wife is not also expected to travel because that would mean the entire family has to go. Beyond that, I'm not certain of why there would be this difference here between the men and the women. It is an accountability and a, in a lot of ways, a, a affirmation of their belonging to the covenant, belonging to Yahweh, but the, the separation between male and female here, the only thing I can think of, and as I looked into this a little bit, um, the, the most common explanation that's given, because this, this is repeated throughout the Old Testament a few times, is because the men are the ones who are the workers, and so they are the ones who are going and presenting themselves before Yahweh. I would love any thoughts. Does Yahweh
0: hate women, Pastor Clayton?
1: Um, We're going to talk quite a bit about that here in the Leviticus passages, but Mm. the answer is no, he does not. Um, This is not a devaluing of women in any way, shape, or form. I just do not think that. I don't see that here.
0: Ah, Leviticus. (laughs) If you've kept up with the Bible reading plan, congratulations, you're probably about to fall behind. Leviticus (laughs) is the banner (laughs) example of why people struggle to read the Bible. Hmm. It has been characterized as obscure, boring, irrelevant, strange, and gross. It is mostly law which no one in any age of history beyond priests and lawyers has ever found particularly thrilling. But, I want you to kick your sacred imagination into high gear as we engage with this section of scripture. Because Leviticus is a work of supreme imagination, it invites us not only to build a tabernacle, a meeting place between us and the Creator, in our minds, it expands our network of meaning beyond what we normally consider significant in the life of faith. It is a testament to the consequences and stakes of our choices as men and women. Leviticus, indeed, is a manual of new creation, and that is the central idea I want you to hold in your mind as you read. All of this is in service to recreating what was lost in Eden. Relationship with God, harmony with one another, peace within yourself, all taking place in a healthy, well-cultivated garden. And With that as an overture, we will be reading Leviticus chapters 9-26 through this next week. Most of the book will have one more chapter. Uh, the week after that. But Leviticus sits at the center of the Torah. There are five books, this is the third, so there's two before it and two after it. And as we've gotten to know ancient Hebrew thought and storytelling, we've seen that often the most important part, the punchline, if you will, occurs in the middle. And I think that that is true of Leviticus. Exodus closes with the glory of Yahweh filling the tabernacle, which is what was supposed to happen. But now that his glory is resident among the Israelites, they can't draw near as sinful, deathly people. And so the first couple of chapters of Leviticus, which we read last week, provides the solution for this, the sacrifices. And they are, these sacrifices, at the most fundamental level, the foundation of the relationship between Yahweh and his people, really their meals offered at the Lord's table. And so in chapter 9, the regular service of the tabernacle begins, but in chapter 10, it immediately veers off track due to the unauthorized actions of two of Aaron's sons. We're not entirely sure what they did, but we are to understand that it was a violation of God's holiness. And after this violation, another set of laws are given that outline the bounds of holiness for the whole people. And these laws touch on very ordinary things— Food, childbirth, menstruation, rashes, sores, other of what we would call medical issues. In chapter 16, Yahweh details the ritual for the Day of Atonement, the one day in the year when the high priest can enter the most holy place and the entire sin debt of the nation is cleared from the books. We then see in 17 that the Israelites were making sacrifices away from the camp, and more specifically away from the tabernacle, and some of them were even sacrificing to demons of the wilderness. And after this rebellious activity, we given more laws in chapter 18 through 22 having to do with proper sexual relations, warnings to stay away from the practices of the heathen Canaanites, aka sacrificing to goat demons and rules for the priests and Levites. Chapters 23-25 through 25 detail rules concerning the great annual festivals and introduce the concept of the Sabbath year, which took place every seven years, and the Great Sabbath, or Jubilee year, which was supposed to occur every half a century. Finally, in chapter 26, the blessings and curses of the covenant are articulated. Now, at first glance, many of these things do not strike modern Christians as particularly urgent, but I think that if we can engage imaginatively with the themes, we can make the journey from the particulars of the ancient Israelite situation to our own. The first theme, really the basic worldview assumption being made, is that the universe was created by Yahweh through a series of separations or distinctions. Most fundamentally, the universe and Yahweh are distinct. The creator and his creation are separate. This is really what holiness means. Now, there are many implications of the creator's separateness that Leviticus uh, uh, illuminates, but the fact of total separateness is the foundational, the base concept. And so Yahweh, in order to create the universe, separated the light from the darkness, the heavens from the earth, the waters above from the heavens below, and so on, down to man being separate from woman. And ancient Hebrew cosmology, or how they thought about the universe, was as a vast collection of distinct creatures that are all in relationship to, that are all attending to the creator. And another way to think about this is that Yahweh created a universe of relationships. He created the universe for relationships, because only distinct things can be in relationship to one another. And throughout the Torah, one of the ways that sin is conceived of is as the violation of these boundaries people trying to be God, people using other people as things, people destroying the creation, people making false gods in their own image. And under the old covenant, these distinctions were not ever to be broken because the old creation could not bear the consequences. And the major implication of this holy distinction is that Yahweh is not and will not mix with sin and death, and therein lies the challenge of living among humans since we are very sinful and very mortal. Now, Jesus would one day break the principal boundary between creator and human, but he would do so in such a way that Yahweh's divine life would enter into human nature and through humanity renew the whole creation. Leviticus makes space for that gospel hope, but it is offered to people who will wait centuries for that fulfillment. The laws dealing with clean and unclean must be read not as dealing with right and wrong, but with the presence of life or death. Leviticus determines that sex, childbirth, and burying your dead relative all make someone unclean, but it is not saying that those things are sinful, but rather that they are marked by mortality, they're marked by the forces of life and death, which cannot enter the presence of the Creator. And so as you read these laws, it will not always be clear why something is related to death pigs, for instance, but we can be confident that that is the abiding concept behind the clean-unclean laws. And again, use your imagination, have fun with it, try and work it out. Some things it does make more sense than other things. Now, Leviticus doesn't offer an exhaustive law code for all elements of life. Rather, these laws are a sample meant to teach a certain outlook to Israel so that they can distinguish between clean and unclean and all things on their own. And it is very urgent for modern Christians to adopt greater thoughtfulness in our eating, our consumption, our sexual morality, our politics, you name it. And all of this, again, is in service to holding the universe together according to how Yahweh created it. Leviticus mandates how the Israelites will maintain the space, the stuff, and the time for these right relationships to continue to exist. Leviticus then, as I said earlier, is a manual for new creation, and contains much wisdom for us as we embark on that same kingdom work in our own context. What choices can we make to cultivate and sustain life, rather than death? How can we reflect the Creator's heart for relationship, peace, and forgiveness? How can we eat and consume in a righteous way that maintains the created network of organisms? How can we live in the heathen world, but not be of that world? How can we heed the warnings of God's curses and the punishments meted out on the rebellious priests and the Egyptian blasphemer, knowing that Jesus has taken the weight of those curses upon himself? Um,
1: I do have a, a number of questions, oh, Pastor I Ben. would the, be
0: surprised I w- if you didn't.
1: I would love to hear from you about. So the first one, you mentioned we don't know exactly why um, the, the two sons of Aaron are killed. Oh. But... Um, Nadab and Abihu are are killed, and we, different translations say different things about the fire. Some call it strange or alien fire. what What is alien fire, Pastor Ben?
0: What does that mean? it at least means that they were using fire in some way that they weren't supposed to. Mm-hmm. That's the the simplest, yeah. thing. Uh, I think it's quite likely that perhaps they were using uh, like instruments that weren't dedicated to the temple so they were kind of impure they were unclean Mm -hmm. and so the fire then burning would be alien or unauthorized or strange just in terms of being you know uh, unclean it could be that they were trying to do something that they weren't supposed to do it seems like they were quite close to the holy of holies and so it could also be that It was just the fact that they were entering into the Holy of Holies in a way that they weren't supposed to. And so they were just transgressing that boundary. We are told later in the chapter that the priests are not to be drunk uh, when they do their ministry. And so many commentators have drawn a connection to that, that maybe they were drunk Mm. and were like fooling around and being stupid in the way that drunk guys often are. And so that's you know and so and maybe it's all of it maybe it's all those things i mean i i think that one of the things and we've we've hit on this a couple of times one of the things we have to just accept about the bible that we actually have is that it doesn't give us as many details as we want and again i think that often that is intentional and so my reading of this is they could have given us a very specific detailed account of what mm-hmm. exactly the boys did and then we would read that and go, well, they shouldn't have done that. Good thing I'll never do that specific thing. Mm-hmm. And so keeping it more vague, I think, allows for a greater sense of, like, there are many things that it could have been. So let's be cautious and treat these things with respect and not try and do any of the things that, that could potentially incur wrath from the Lord.
1: There's interesting, like, commands to Mo- or to Aaron about how he is not supposed to grieve them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going on with that?
0: Well, I think that the on one level, the basic level, it's the death connection. So he's the high priest. And uh, unless it's like, I think maybe later in Leviticus stipulated, if it's the high priest's wife or like very close kin, he's allowed to mm-hmm. do the grieving. But otherwise he can't. Now these are his sons. I think also, so that's part of it. It's just that the whole presence of death, Aaron is meant to be the prime human kind of representative of the life of the garden in which death is is not to exist uh i think also because they were killed rebelliously like in rebellion i think is probably part of that as well that it wasn't just a natural death you know and maybe it would have been different if they had both been struck by lightning or something you know something just a, a natural accident or something like that but rather than a kind of a judicial execution really they were executed by the lord yeah. i think that, that that probably changes the uh the allowance for grief for the high priest so why is it that they
1: are killed for this action you know using strange fire but Aaron, who actually created a golden idol for the people to worship was not killed that doesn't seem
0: fair I mean, what in our world seems fair?
1: Well, we believe in a a just God, right? And so... Th- we sure
0: do, but uh, again, what in the world <laughs> seems fair? That's a fair response, okay? <laughs> I think, okay, so maybe theologically, I think, again, it's I think it's something to do with the Holy of Holies, that they either entered into the Holy of Holies space, you know, or, or somehow disrespecting that, whereas Aaron wasn't doing that. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think that it's... Aaron was not, he was sinning, not disputing that, but I think that the golden calf was to represent Yahweh, uh, or Yahweh and the host or whatever, you know, but just that it was, he was not steering them away from Yahweh in that, uh, he just was doing something that was, you know, he wasn't supposed to. Whereas I think Nadab and Abihu were somehow, I think specifically disrespecting the Holy of Holies and, Mm. and, uh, what was supposed to be happening there what was supposed to be represented there so the two kind of judicial death stories that we get in leviticus you know we've got the the priests here and then we have this egyptian or the son of an egyptian who blasphemed and you know and so both of those things i think are linked by dishonor and disrespect so that's why i'm kind of reading that that disrespect or that dishonor element into not and Abihu's stories because i think that the there's a reason that those two are the stories that are told Because let's be honest, they probably killed some other folks in the course of receiving these laws from (laughs) Leviticus. And so, you know, but those are the two that they they preserved uh, in the midst of these laws. Um, And so I think that, uh, yeah, I think that that's that's part of that as well. So, and of course, Aaron will be punished. He's not, you know, he dies outside of the promised land along with the rebellious generation, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not like he's just given a free pass.
1: Uh, in Leviticus chapter 12, talks about purification after childbirth.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And there's this, just this very difficult um, set of verses. I'm going to go ahead and read them. It's five verses. Uh, chapter 12, 1 to 5. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially, un- ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her from her bleeding. So we have 41, 40 days of, Mm -hmm. of waiting. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter for two weeks, the woman will be unclean as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. Why is the waiting period for a daughter longer than a son, does does Yahweh think God daughters— God hates women,
0: yeah. <laughs> let's, just, let's just say okay, it. Okay, there you go. Him.
1: Yep, He hates them. Yep. So, that's so we Pastor know ben, that everybody. that's not true. We right. know
0: that that's not it. And so I think it's just important to start— Genesis is how this whole thing kicks off, mm-hmm. right? Men and women are created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. It's very important as well that I think we are— <laughs> In reading Leviticus and understanding the the difference between clean and unclean and righteousness and sinful, those are very distinct categories. Mm -hmm. There's some overlap. If you enter into the sacred space in in a state of uncleanness, that is sinful. But the fact that you're unclean is not sinful. Mm -hmm. I just think that that's worth repeating over and over and over again, that clean and unclean does not have to do with sin and righteousness it's a different category. You know, last week we talked about even with sin itself, that there's a forgiveness, Uh a wronging and a forgiveness aspect, but then there's also a pollution and a purifying aspect. The pollution purification is a category we don't think of because we live on the other side of Jesus who very clearly declared all foods were clean and has purified his people through his death. So we as Christians don't have to think about clean and unclean in exactly the same way that they did. And so I think that it just needs to be stated over and over again (laughs) that it is not saying that women are more sinful or that giving birth to a daughter is sinful. You know, it is more unclean. So let's talk about why. So women are miracles in that they bear in their bodies the ability to bring new humans into the world. Now, of course, the man has a seminal <coughs> contribution to be made <laughs> to that process, but it is the woman that carries the baby. The woman's body has the womb. And so that means that in a, in a way that is different from men, women carry the forces of life and death within them. Childbirth and pregnancy are fraught with difficulty and danger. Uh, sometimes we forget that in the modern world, but especially in the pre-modern world, childbirth often was the death of the woman. Sometimes was the death of the baby. Babies, obviously, not every pregnancy is viable. You know, women and men struggle with infertility. Like all that to say is these things are fraught with both life and death. And so I think that it is the the presence of that power which the creator gave to women so it's again we're not talking about right and wrong but the fact that they have that power and that it is fraught in this fallen world with the presence of death as well as of life means that that that's why a woman would be unclean after childbirth and so giving birth to another woman another human female it's sort of like multiplying the power which again is a good thing be fruitful and multiply he tells Mm -hmm. them but you're bringing another human into the world who is also going to bear the power of life and death within them, and so the uncleanness is doubled. Mm-hmm. And so I think within that realm, within that network of meaning of, of death and life and the clean and unclean, I think it makes sense why uh, the unclean period for a, the birth of a daughter would be longer. The important thing here that you,
1: you, you said, and I think said very well, is we read unclean and we hear sin bad. Right. And that is not... Those do not correlate together. Correct.
0: Now, if one of these women who then would enter the tabernacle courtyard in her state of uncleanness, that would be a sin. Mm-hmm. But the fact that she's unclean is not sinful. Right. Right. She can do sinful things
1: because because she's unclean. That would not be sinful for a person who was not unclean.
0: Correct. But the uncleanness and, is yes, and I think and of course we're both men, so our, our direct experience is zero, but <laughs> you know because it also mentions menstruation in the monthly period and uh-huh. that, that also makes a woman unclean. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not that it's sinful, but that the presence of blood where it's quote unquote not supposed to be, or a, a violation of the envelope of the body, right? And we'll talk we'll talk about that. You know, this is the opening to several chapters of talking about bodies leaking <laughs> in ways that they're not supposed to mm. leak or because, again, it's not the periods aren't supposed to happen, but just that blood is the life force. And so if it's leaking out of you, that's sort of the presence of death, the presence of life as well for a woman, since menstruation is the engine of, of life. But just that, again, all of this is tied together. And so that's what is making this an unclean thing. It's just that your body is leaking, you know, your body is leaking life, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's the uncleanness there.
1: I imagine that um, we will have some questions about the the Day of Atonement, um, but I would like to just hear you talk a little bit about it. Um, this is a very big part of Leviticus, but also a very big part of the the, the Jewish calendar. And I'd love to hear some thoughts about what's going on with the Day of Atonement.
0: Well, and I'm obviously speaking from the position of a modern Christian person, so I'm sure uh, if we were to go find a Jewish neighbor and ask them what Yom Kippur means to them, I think we'd probably get a, a different, probably not a wholly different answer, but certainly a, 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 an answer that is richer in different ways than, mm-hmm. what I, than what I'd be able to say. The Day of Atonement comes in the middle of two of the other great festivals, and so the Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, also known as the Festival of Trumpets, occurs first. Um, and then the Festival of Huts or Booths uh, or Tabernacles, however you want to call it, mm-hmm. um, the Festival of Camping is my, my preferred uh, term for it, is what comes after. And both of those are celebratory. And so the Day of Atonement comes in the middle. And we haven't heard much about those two other festivals yet. And so they, they uh, articulate about the Day of Atonement first, which again, the important thing comes in the middle. Um, And so the day of atonement is in the middle and it is certainly a day of forgiveness for sin. I think perhaps we could say a day of assurance of forgiveness for sin, because obviously the whole daily cycle, monthly cycle of sacrifices are hopefully also happening. Mm -hmm. So the day of atonement, I think is the, the completion of that, or the, the, like I said, the assurance that that has happened, that Yahweh has not only forgiven their sins, but also purified the altars purified the people of the pollution of their sin Uh, and so i think it is it's sort of a like a a what's the word i'm looking for like not a catch-all but just a the assurance of the clearance of the books i mean they don't really use accounting language Mm -hmm. in leviticus itself i mean debt and credit are used in other parts of the bible yeah uh and so it's much more about the pollution i think here yes and just the restoration of the relationship uh the that's what atonement when William Tyndale invented the word, it means at one mint, look mm-hmm. it up. Uh, and so, I mean, that's, you know, when we say atonement, and often actually when Le- when our English translations in Leviticus use atonement, I think the word might actually be purification or purgation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- this idea of purification is very much what's happening. That's why the blood, again, the life force is being placed on the people and the altar and, and everything else. You know, the symbolism of the two goats is interesting and rather mysterious because this is another one of those things where the original meaning was lost pretty quickly and so there's a lot of of thought about what is meant by the goat in the wilderness being given to Azazel or dedicated to Azazel and I think most kind of nakedly we know that Azazel is the name of a demonic being and a kind of a wilderness god and so you know Leviticus I think is acknowledging something kind of spiritually happening here that will be much more expanded upon in the New Testament I think uh-huh. but that you know earlier in Christian history the idea of Jesus's death being a ransom that God is paying to the devil was a much more common thought we don't and I think rightly I I don't, I don't ascribe to that idea and I think that there were some some serious flaws in it but I understand how they got there that Part of what happened with the fall in the garden is that the enemy, the evil one, kind of received ownership over humankind, like he's our rightful, quote-unquote rightful, because we gave that authority to him in the in the eating of the fruit. And so I think that, again, the Day of Atonement is pointing forward to this this release from our slavery to sin, our release from the kingdom of the evil one and our reconciliation, our forgiveness to Yahweh. And so that's why one goat is sent into the wilderness and one goat is is slaughtered and uh, used to purify the altars. So you mentioned Azazel. Mm-hmm. Um, but if
1: I'm an NIV reader, I don't see that word in my text.
0: Well, that's because they made a decision not to confuse you.
1: Right. Um, so I get scapegoat, I think is the word that is different. If I'm reading the NIV and I see scapegoat and I don't see Azazel, uh, you mentioned that that's, the, that's because they don't want to confuse me, but what, what are we supposed to take from the, this, the the whole Azazel idea? I imagine some of our, our listeners are completely new to the idea of this being. And so could you talk about that a little bit?
0: Well, we don't really know. Uh, and so later in chap- the next chapter refers to the e- Hebrew sacrificing to goat demons, uh-huh. uh, which is, again... Cut kind of where we just don't really know what exactly that means um but some kind of a goat goat like deities <laughs> or because goats mm-hmm. lived in the wilderness often you know that there's some association between goats and and these demons in the wilderness i mean even in middle eastern culture in islamic culture the wilderness is associated with demons sure uh or jinn you know in, in the quran mm-hmm. And so i just say that to mean very ancient very deeply held just cultural beliefs in that area of the world was that the wilderness is where demonic spirits lived you see this reflected throughout the bible you know that when the cities when the prophets said that the cities are going to be ruined and they become the haunts of jackals and owls and demons and again depending on your translation they will cushion that to make it more acceptable to mm-hmm post scientific society but a lot of those words are talking about demonic spirits. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about that when we get there, but just that this this idea that the demons inhabit the wilderness. Where does Jesus meet the devil? Oh, in the wilderness. In the wilderness. When Jesus talks about exercising demons, you know, mm-hmm. he talks about them going into waterless places, aka mm-hmm. the wilderness and seeking some some habitation. And so just throughout the scripture, the wilderness is the realm of of the demonic. I think on a kind of social geographic level I think that makes sense because the wilderness is also a realm of chaos meaning it is not ordered for human habitation Uh you know so going back to Genesis God takes the stuff of the universe you know the Lord created the God created the heavens and the earth and then he orders it into the Garden of Eden so that humans can dwell there and so the ocean is a realm of chaos. That's why there's monsters and things that live there. And sure. so in the same way, the wilderness is a realm of chaos. And that's why it's associated with demonic entities. And so all of that to say, Azazel is most likely the name of one of these things. I think that the... So the NIV made a choice to to kind of cushion the presence of another spiritual being I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I think maybe we'll save for a different time. And as people have questions, we can talk about it. But I think that the general idea is still correct. You know, they're not changing the meaning so much as thinning it. (laughs) Okay. So, like, the goat is being sent into the wilderness. And the idea is that the sins of the people are being cast away into chaos like they're meaning they're cast away into nothingness is the idea and so that is maintained i think by the scapegoat idea that is being sent away from the people and so they're gone like the, the sin doesn't mean anything anymore uh-huh. once it's out of the ordered realm in which yahweh lives with his people and again as if folks have more questions about that or just some of the other things that we touched on just now they're more than welcome to ask and we will talk about it to the best of our ability. I mean, that if I can just add, tack one final comment onto that. It's just a general, as we're reading the Bible, reminder. The Hebrew understanding of the universe was as something that was filled with yes. spiritual beings. Not just people and Yahweh. I mean, in, in modern evangelical Christian parlance, we say angels and demons. That's fine. But like, just all sorts of things, you know. Things, spirits associated with particular places, spirits associated with particular times, just full, chock full. You know, I was mm-hmm. reading Revelation the last couple of weeks. It talks about the angel of the sun and the angels of these rivers and the angels, you know, and just this way that we don't associate because we think it's not biblical, but it it actually it is. deeply <laughs> is. But anyway, so just, just well, to tack that on, that, that the, the, the world spiritual. is full of... Mm-hmm. Spiritual beings. I mean, there's there's just no other way to, if to us, say it. For us, spiritual
1: means like less tangible or less yes, real. Yes, yes. But that is a modern invention. Yeah, correct. Yeah. When we Especially talk about, the
0: other way around, right?
1: <laughs> when we talk about these these spiritual beings talked about in Leviticus, they didn't have a delineation of like. So it's not a physical thing, or it's not a right. um, a real thing in right. this in the right. way that we think right. of it. These are living things that are part of God's creation, whether good or rebellious or right. whatever the case may be. And it's interesting, other parts of the world don't have the same hangups hang that we do. <laughs> yeah. um, my summer in West Africa was interesting in a number of ways. But one of them was that for them, the spirits that live in different places were incredibly real. People yeah. believe they saw them, believe they interacted with them. And in fact, like what you just referred to a moment ago, in many ways, those spirits are more real than many of the other things we take as physical and real. Mm-hmm. Um the spirit in the river is more real than the river because the river moves and changes, but that spirit is always there. Let's move on to Leviticus 18, if we can. Mm -hmm. Um, So Yahweh seems very preoccupied by who his people have sex with. Why? Especially today, where there seems to be much less of a stigma around sex. Um, A reader might read Leviticus 18 and just be very confused by Yahweh's preoccupation. With who his people have sex with. Why, why does that matter to him so much?
0: There's like 17 different directions that I want to take my answer. <laughs> you pontificate at will. I, I've so, been excited to hear your
1: answer to this question.
0: All right. Answer number one he is preoccupied with it because it is deeply important. It is deeply important in a way that our hypersexualized culture actually has forgotten and lost. Uh, If you can have sex with whomever you want, whenever you want, it actually loses significance. Um, And I think that's an important thing to say at the outset, that we actually have lost the significance of sex in our modern society. It's just sex. What's the big deal? Totally alien to, I think, the biblical understanding. And if we're honest, and more and more people are becoming honest, even in the secular feminist, you know, sex-positive spheres, that it's deeply important to us. Uh, and that's actually a loss. A lifestyle that's based on casual sex is actually a loss of of a meaning, a loss of humanity. Not that the people are less human, but just that we're 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 going away from mm-hmm. even just in our internal sense of what is good and 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 what is right. So that's the first answer. He's treating it as important because it is important. Second level, I think that flowing from the fact that it's important is that its consequences are deeply important relationships can be ruined by improper sex. Uh, they can be ruined horrendously. Uh, if you have sex with a child that child will bear the consequences of that forever and you hopefully go to prison and so you will bear the consequences of that forever if you violate you know someone else's marriage or violate your own marriage I mean those the consequences of that explode throughout households and churches and families and communities, you know, because of how deeply important sex actually is. I think it's it's also important just in the context of, of Leviticus to understand that these prohibitions are occurring within the context of warnings to not follow in the footsteps of the Canaanite peoples that they're about to enter into the land of. So it says here, chapter 18 begins, uh, not like the deeds of the land of Egypt in which you dwelled shall you do, and not like the deeds of the land of Canaan into which I'm about to bring you shall you do, and according to their statute you shall not walk. And so I think that there is an acknowledgement here as well that whether whether some of these acts are wicked in and of themselves, which can be explored, I think that the overarching thing is these are idolatrous practices that are not in keeping with the worship of Yahweh. And so as Yahweh's people, they will not do them. So I think we just, we need to acknowledge that because that's the context of these passages. Like it's not saying now for a bunch of sex rules. It's saying now for a bunch of warnings away from the practices of the Canaanites and Egyptians, which mm. happen to include... A lot of sexual acts, but I mean, there's, there's other things also included.
1: There's one law in particular I wanted to ask you about. Mm-hmm. In Leviticus 19, where we get various laws about mm-hmm. very different things, we are told to not um, plant two different kinds of seed in yep. our field. Why? Why does God care about what kind of seed we put in a field?
0: So we will see throughout the Torah this concern of not uh, violating boundaries. And so I think this is a reflection of that. Uh, don't wear clothing of two different types of fabric, don't yoke an ox and a, and a donkey together. I mean, just th- all these different things. And so I think that this is, at the most basic, it is an expression of saying we're not, we're maintaining these distinctions that, that Yahweh has made. These plants are different, and so we will not have them compete with one another in the same field. And there may be other implications, like the health of the soil as other things, you know, not stated, we don't know. I mean, I... I I get a little suspicious of like reading in like our modern scientific understandings into this of like, well, he didn't want them to eat shellfish because they can make you sick. And that might be true. That's just not what's part of what, what's happening. Sure. <laughs> and again, it's not a one-to-one thing. So we're not taking farming advice from the book of Leviticus, just like we're not taking cooking or pregnancy advice from the book of Leviticus. <laughs> we are mm. trying to, understand and meditate on the themes here and then reflect them back onto our, into our own lives. And so I think that do we sow two, two, diff- two different types of seed in a field, I think really is a question about integrity. Like, do we do we conduct ourselves and our social lives and our business practices and our whatever else with the integrity of, you know, we are just one sort of people. We are God's people in the world. We're not mixing uh, godly influences and, and uh, evil influences. I want to move on to chapter
1: 20. Um, so we talked, we talked about uh, Azazel in Leviticus 16 is mentioned, and he is this, this wilderness demon. Mm. We read about Molech in Leviticus 20, and he's um, a frequent flyer in the Old Testament. Um, and I would just like to know a little bit about who is he and why is Yahweh so concerned about him?
0: Uh, if I remember right, Molech is the kind of the patron deity of the Moabite people, which In would be mm-hmm. lots of uh, descendants who are neighbors and will continue to be neighbors of the Israelites throughout the history. And so I think part of the concern is it's a neighboring God. And so we'll be tempting to incorporate into their understanding or their worship of Yahweh, mm-hmm. which is unacceptable because Yahweh is not Molech. And more specifically that Molech seems to have been a particularly bloodthirsty God uh, specifically wanting sacrifice of children sacrifice firstborn sons uh, to uh, listen or to intercede uh, on behalf of his people and so we see that reflected here you will not pass your seed meaning children uh, to molech so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my sacred name you know and so later on in the prophets when it talks about human sacrifice yahweh will say I think especially in Jeremiah like it never even entered my mind to ask you to do these things like you're told, like the wickedness is like, I mean god is quote unquote supposed to know everything but it's like he's astounded at like I, I i could never have even imagined some of the wickedness that you're doing in a nutshell that's that's what's happening here with Molech, is that he's a neighboring he's a neighboring deity or he's he's one of these deities that they're going to encounter because remember they drive the canaanites out or they conquer or they kill them all or whatever but the stuff is all still sitting there mm-hmm. their idols the shrines the stuff is you know and they're supposed to destroy it all we'll see that in Deuteronomy they don't and and I you know I think it'd be difficult to the more you learn about the material culture the harder it is to blame the israelites <laughs> for doing that because <laughs> if all the bowls or the shovels have molech on them well, we don't want to break all the shovels because then we're gonna to have to make our own. I mean, I'm just making up that example, you know, right. but just as an example. Or if you know, you drive all the Canaanites out of a village and they had a really nice set of knives, but they were used in the worship of Molech. Well, now you have a choice to make: do you destroy the knives, or do you go ahead and use them because they're really nice
1: knives? Well, <laughs> Meg, it's hard because like the home was right. Uh, the home there was Molech worship yes, in, yes. in the yes. homes.
0: Well, and, so and again, and, and going back to the whole spiritualization or enchanted kind of universe that the Israelites dwell. Well, then all normal household objects were also bound up in these, these ways of meaning around pagan worship. When we see that in Leviticus, their bowls and their cooking utensils and their ovens and stoves and the walls of their houses and everything else are being drawn into this mm-hmm. life with Yahweh as well. And so it was the same for other, not exactly the same, but it was similar with the pagan peoples around them that these objects that we think of as just an ordinary, I mean, that's my cup. You know, but that there is a there was a there was a religious significance ascribed to these things that we as moderns have a very difficult time <laughs> wrapping our heads around, mm-hmm. you know, kind of in the day to day of it, right? I mean, we still do things or we keep things because it belonged to our grandpa or whatever, you know, and so there's sort of a spiritual significance granted to things, not all of which is necessarily bad. Um, yeah. And so I think all that to say it's just that that they were gonna be encountering the worship of Molech and they were gonna be tempted to uh, and we see that, right? They struggled with child sacrifice later on in their history, um, which again, we, we can struggle to wrap our minds around that. Uh, I, I don't think there's a direct line to be drawn between ancient child sacrifice and modern abortion, not, at least not as clearly as some pro-life advocates make it seem. But I think that there are similar dynamics at play there, uh, that we whenever a society kills children is bad (laughs) and we create kind of structures of meaning to excuse it and we've done that in modern america i mean that's changed the ground shifted quite a bit since the supreme court decision and everything but you know so back then it made sense like it wasn't Mm -hmm. that they were like oh let's do this radical terrible thing you know or whatever. You think about the Aztecs and all of their human sacrifice. I mean, there was a there was a structure of meaning in which doing that made, it made sense. sense. It mm-hmm. was still maybe a, a huge sacrifice and everything else, but it made sense. These things are not quite as distant from us as, as we always as we sometimes yeah. might think. I, let me let me say one more thing about that. Back to the whole it's not a one to one thing between abortion and Molech worship. I'm not trying to say that, that women and families who seek abortions are worshiping the false god Molech. That's a very difficult decision to make. There's a lot that goes into it. And so I'm not, again, trying, I'm not trying to draw a one-to-one distinction between those things.
1: One of the, mo- the more common, I don't mean to say it's, it's everywhere, but one of the common punishments in Leviticus for sin mm. is death.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there's a, one of the things we learn in the New Testament is that punishment from Yahweh is redemptive. Um, the Lord, when the Lord allows discipline to happen to his, his people, it's for redemptive purposes. But death is kind of final. And so I'm, I'm curious as to... Eh,
0: not so final as you might think.
1: Uh, but why does Yahweh not have a more redemptive punishment plan for people that are, are committing sins?
0: As we get deeper into the law, I think that an a, uh, interpretive guidepost that I think is good for us to re- remember is again reflecting on how the psalms and the proverbs talk about the law is that it is a vehicle for wisdom and i think that at least part of what that means is that the law (laughs) that the laws are teaching units meaning they're not just about the thing that they're stated to be about they are contributing to a broader outlook or a broader way of being in the world that is meant to be instilled in the Israelites, and that is the important thing, not necessarily the, the specifics of the law. We also know that they did not enforce all of these laws exactly as written, and that that was often not considered to be unrighteous. And so the, the local judges, tribal elders, chieftains had a lot of leeway in how these things were actually enforced on the ground. We also know that I think some of these laws are certainly there because this was a possibility, the violation was a possibility. Again, Paul and Galatians, the law is for lawbreakers. It doesn't exist if the law is not broken. But that the punishment, I think, is more of a deterrent, meaning if if you do this, this is the punishment for it. Whether we actually kill you, it will probably be up to the local authorities in your your village or your town but that that is the gravity of this that is the severity of this so like in the book of Jonah the message is in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown that mm-hmm. sounds like a promise mm-hmm. <laughs> like Yahweh said he's going to do something and we know he's faithful to do things he's going to do but then they repent and Yahweh doesn't do the thing he said he was going to do so there seems to be a bit of a there's a seems to be a distinction between threats and promises <laughs> Threats of, pro- of punishment are not quite the same thing as promises mm-hmm. of fulfillment or promises of hope. And so I think that in the same way, these are threats of punishment, meaning that doesn't have to happen like this. But it might. It might, but it doesn't have to. Um, so all I think it doesn't have to, meaning you don't have to make bad choices and incur the penalty, but it also means that it doesn't have to actually go this way. Again, we talked about this last week, that repentance is a major ingredient in a lot of these things. And so if someone has done one of these things and is unrepentant, then perhaps they are doomed to die. If somebody does one of these things and legitimately repents and, and offers sacrifices, I think there is, there is room in the covenant for them to be purified and forgiven, perhaps still punished. There is still this element of restitution that has to happen with, with some of the sacrifices.
1: We get a list of the, the, Um, Jewish festivals starting in Leviticus 23 Mm -hmm. and descriptions of
0: them. Why don't Christians celebrate the Jewish festivals? Probably because of the whole we don't like the Jews thing that we did for 1945 years. I think that Paul saying that, you know, we don't have to keep special days and fasts and whatever else, that many Christians took that as saying that we shouldn't. (laughs) Hmm. Don't have to is different than shouldn't. Sure. Sure. And so I think that that right there is the kind of the theological basis for why the church kind of abandoned these things very early. I mean, Mm -hmm. the early church did not celebrate some of these things. I think that there is also a sense of fulfillment. So like the day of atonement has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so we don't have to go kill a goat because Jesus is the goat. (laughs) Right. Jesus is both goats. As a matter of fact, Mm -hmm. his blood purified the altar and he was sent to the realm of hell (laughs) to, to defeat the evil one. And so, yeah, I think the fulfillment is a big part of it, but I think that the the difference between don't have to and shouldn't are is very different. You know, it's like messianic Jewish communities still celebrate the biblical mm-hmm. festivals, and I think that they're right to. you know, I think that we're right to acknowledge when it's these festivals and to talk about their significance. I think that we want to be we want to be careful. I think in our modern context, because there are still living Jewish communities who are celebrating these things as their holidays. And so for us to be like, okay, I'm going to celebrate Hanukkah, you know, it's like, well, all right, but it's not <laughs> really your holiday. <laughs> Again, in kind of that social, sociocultural sense. And so mm-hmm. I think it rightly strikes us maybe as a little weird if somebody was like going to full on, you know, celebrate Passover or something uh, as Christian people. I think maybe the better option is to join synagogue community or or jewish neighbors in their celebration and just kind of see how it's done rather than you know kind of quote unquote trying to do our own weird like hybrid christian jewish holiday thing Um, but that's just kind of more my own my own personal opinion so circle back number one fulfillment jesus fulfilled the meaning of the festivals although why reject an excuse to party number two don't have to is very different than shouldn't Mm-hmm. I think there is a a certain like well we're not Jewish people we're Gentile people and so why would we keep these Jewish festivals that is reflected in the anti-Semitism in a lot of Christian history that's that's not the whole of the story but that is I think an element of it that that made it easy maybe to to decouple from from some of these festivals so
1: you mentioned fulfillment and there are there are Christian holidays that go with things like Easter mm-hmm. that are are. I don't know what you would call them. Perhaps sequels to yeah. to some of the, the the Jewish holidays, and so that's true. There's, a, I think, a, a part of it is also a continuation from, and mm-hmm. then the Easter seasons, liturgical calendar, is not the same thing as the Jewish calendar. But right. there is a a um, a redeemedness to a lot of the um, the practices of the liturgical calendar that we see, and and it would be a lot to do both right? To focus on the liturgical seasons and the Jewish the Jewish seasons. But I do think that there's value in them. What is a wave offering? So in Leviticus, a lot of the time mm-hmm. uh, here in the later chapters, we hear about wave offerings. So yes, yes, we don't really, when the offerings are, are described at the beginning of Leviticus, uh-huh. the wave offering is not it's included not among yet. them.
0: Uh, so wave or like an elevation offering, I think is can be applied to some of the other sacrifices and so it's a part of the liturgy where they raise up the thing that they're going to mm. sacrifice and then they continue on with the process and so it's just a a kind of an emphasis on offering up the thing personally because the person themselves the offerer themselves often does the wave or the elevation part Whereas it's the priest who slaughters and 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 purifies with the blood and everything else, so I think it's just a it's a participation of the worshipper, the Israelite worshipper, in the the liturgy of the the sacrifice.
1: My last question is: You mentioned earlier, and this is a big question. Mm. You mentioned earlier that Yahweh will not mix with sin and death.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. Why? I mean, I think the short answer is because he can't. In the same way that fire cannot mix with. Not fire. <laughs> well, or let me put it this way. So it's not that fire can't mix with it, but fire turns whatever it touches into itself. Uh-huh. And so I think it's very similar that, that God's holiness, God's life turns whatever it touches into itself or really consumes the things that are. And so things that are like Yahweh survive. Uh, and the problem is, is that at this point in salvation history, nothing was like Yahweh <laughs> except mm-hmm. Yahweh. Uh, or the things of the temple, you mm-hmm. know, that the, the sacred articles survive the fire because they've, they've been made like made like Yahweh is. You know, I think that the burning bush is actually a clue that it part of the marvel why Moses stops and looks is because it is something that should be being burnt up, but it isn't. And so they're, in a, you know, theologically, how does that work out? Why this one bush? I don't know. But that, that, that there is a, this living organism that is on fire, but it's not being burnt up. And so I think that for us as people, for our stuff, for our houses, for whatever else, that the goal of this is not for God to destroy everything. You know, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, uh, but rather that that through Israel, through who redeemed humanity, ultimately through Jesus, the creation will be renewed so that it can bear God's holiness and life and not be, not only not be destroyed by it, but actually be enlivened and and kind of brought into its fullness of what it was created to be through god's presence Mm -hmm. you know and so you could say like sinful humanity is like tissue paper hold a tissue paper next to a flame and tell me what happens it's not that the flame wants to burn the tissue paper it's just that's what happens there Mm -hmm. is no there is no other way for it to go
1: but wait a second so if we if we take that idea that and I think that would explain some of the stories that we find in the Old Testament. Uzzah reaching out to steady mm. the Ark, right? There's mm-hmm. uncleanness, sin mm-hmm. happening, mm-hmm. right? He touches the Ark, sure. the most holy thing, and, and is is killed. Not because Yahweh decided to zap him, but yeah. because he yeah. a category issue, sure, right? Sure. We who are Christians mm-hmm. believe that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Right. So Yahweh is present in us, and yet we also are sinful mm-hmm. people. And so it seems like Yahweh can dwell in the midst of sin.
0: How how does that work? Um, I think that, that we would, at the highest level, say that that's really not what's happening. It's because Jesus's human nature is sinless and made new that the Holy Spirit can dwell in us. So we are associately indwelt by the Holy Spirit because Jesus is.
1: I'm sure that as you read Leviticus, those, um, perseverers who get all the way through the book do it fight the good fight brothers fight The good fight. um i think that you will likely have many other questions oh, my yeah. list of questions oh, yeah. was about three times Ugh. this long as i uh but what we would love to do is we would love to hear from you next week
0: and i would also just say because we can't i mean you know we can't cover everything we'll try and answer questions but there's a lot more that could be said two resources on Leviticus or three really that I would recommend are one Mary Douglas's book mm-hmm. Levitica- reading Leviticus' literature which we talked about last week excellent excellent gets a little in the weeds on some things but if you can re- get through it it really is good Jacob Milgram's yes. commentary on Leviticus is it's like amazing. the uh, defining commentary on Leviticus very very good again some I mean, if you're studying Leviticus, you wanna get in the weeds, so I'm gonna stop apologizing. <laughs> Jacob Milgram's Commentary on Leviticus. <laughs> and then I believe Samuel Ballantyne has a commentary that I have, uh, that I used in our preaching on Leviticus that was also really excellent. Um, and so if you're interested, come and talk to me. I'd love to loan you those, any of those three books or all three of them, um, mm-hmm. just to help deepen and expand your understanding. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.
1: I got lost for a minute. So I, but I landed it. All right. Where am I?
0: Classic Clayton. I'm
1: having a hard time having with a hard time? words today. <laughs>